Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, And it's hard to believe, but it's that time of year again. Time for our annual Traditions Show. We've headed all around the region this week to find intriguing customs and rituals being practiced from family traditions. It may just be for a few minutes, but we have this very special time with our family. To community traditions. Tell them that it's very festive. Festive. And that you enjoy seeing all the lights. I enjoy seeing all the lights. Makes you happy, doesn't it? And lest you think we're just focusing on the holidays, we've found plenty of traditions around the everyday stuff of life. Uh, These are chapatis, and we grew up eating this in South Africa. But we'll start with a fairly new tradition in Washington, D.C., one that began right here in a church basement in Foggy Bottom. It's 8.15 on a Monday morning, and dozens of people, mostly men, gather around the big, brightly lit room. Some sit at tables, polishing off plates of French toast. Others wander around, chatting and joking. And others, half a dozen or so, sit at a table in the corner. So it looks like the group is already assembled. Waiting. So we can just go over there and uh, sit with them and start the workshop. Grace Overbeck is the head of this workshop, where participants tell personal stories based on the week's chosen theme. Today, it's Hurricane Sandy. I waited in the rain till 8.30. I went to Union Station. I scrounged some food. Went back to sleep on the steps of a church. If someone had to sleep outside, then it could be very, very difficult. To survive. Because I know when we had the storm and stuck in the shelter for two days and couldn't leave and the subway was shut down, the bus was shut that was depressing for me. Picking up on a trend here? Well, here's the thing. The members of Grace's monologue group, as it's called, have one very particular thing in common. They're experiencing homelessness. See, the basement we're visiting is actually the headquarters of Miriam's Kitchen, a day shelter that provides Washington's homeless with food, clothing, haircuts, legal aid, and now an opportunity to tell their story. Grace began the monologue group in May after an encounter with a homeless woman near Logan Circle. She asked if I had any money for food. And I was like, well, I was actually just about to get a sandwich. So she came and we got a sandwich together and she started talking about her, her experience at this shelter where she'd just been kicked out because she got in a fight over a sleeping bag. This conversation, says Grace, opened her eyes. It was such a humanizing afternoon. And her ears. And it made me very interested in people's stories. Grace works full-time at Theater J, which has been partnering with Miriam's Kitchen by offering guests free tickets to shows and personal post-show discussions with cast members. So in June, Grace took that partnership one step further with the very first Stories from the Kitchen, an evening of monologues culled from her monologue group and performed by D.C. area actors at Theater J. Life at the Shelter by Andrea, a.k.a. Peaches. The shelter is just one big space with 85 bunk beds. And on my first night there, I looked and said, I can't do this. The guests whose stories were told were so moved because they felt like someone was listening to them and that the actors playing them knew how they felt, which they did because they put in all this time and work, you know, hearing their words and and getting to that point where they could feel what that person felt. The idea, Grace says, isn't for actors to imitate guests' voices, but rather to use their rhythm and cadence to capture their character, their personality. That's why, as she prepares for the next Stories from the Kitchen on December 19th, she uses a handheld recorder to record her monologue group members, like one of the guys we heard from earlier, John. Because I know when we had the storm and stuck in the shelter for two days and couldn't leave. And then, then Grace plays the recording. 
That was depressing for me. For the actor performing the monologue, in this case, Sasha Olinick, so he can rehearse it. There was a guy, he was locked in the shelter, and he was talking about the Bible for two days. I mean, it's cool, but it was, like, really getting on my nerves, you know? And not being able to go anywhere. But he made one good point about Sandy and how in the Gospels um, it says in the parable of the wise and the foolish builders that the wise man builds his house on a rock, but the foolish builder builds his on the sand. And when the wind comes and the storm comes, the house that's built on the rock stands, but the house that's built on the sand falls. And it was kind of, kind of reminded us about Sandy, you know, and what was going on. Normally, actors and guests don't meet until the performance. But Sasha and John met a few months ago at one of Theater J's post-show discussions. In fact, John actually requested that Sasha perform his piece. I'm really honored. But you feel a sense of wanting to be very careful with the material because people are being very open and sharing their lives and sharing their experiences. And you're going to be performing for the people who have shared this material, and so you really want to do it justice. As for what Wednesday's material will entail, Grace Overbeck says it runs the gamut. There's one piece that is of the genesis of this wonderful writer Baraka's views on race, and there's also a really beautiful biography by Darlene about her experiences growing up in this small town just south of Canada. And Jimmy is a wonderful writer, and so he wrote this beautiful poem, And these writers, Baraka, Darlene, Jimmy, John, the many others, Grace says they run the gamut, too. In the monologues, you hear people referencing their time in graduate school. They'll reference their time, you know, working on a construction site in the government. Really, it's every imaginable background. Just as Grace had her eyes and ears opened by that homeless woman near Logan Circle, she hopes people who attend Stories from the Kitchen will have their eyes and ears open, too and realize that behind every person they encounter, there's a whole lifetime of stories just waiting to be told. The next Stories from the Kitchen is December 19th at Theatre J. The performance is free and open to the public. For more on the show and to watch a video clip from June's production, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Now, tradition definitely comes into play when you're talking about faith. I mean, people of different faiths have all sorts of customs and rituals they observe. For Jewish families, one of these traditions is welcoming Shabbat, or the Sabbath, each Friday night by lighting the Shabbat candles. But what happens when families can't be together in person to usher in the Sabbath? Well, the family we're about to meet faced that very predicament when their children began heading off to college and traveling overseas. And as members of the family shared with Rebecca Blatt, they've found a way to use 21st century technology to keep ancient traditions alive. I'm Ann Sablowski, and you're at the Sablowski Rock Hour household. And soon we will 
Skype with Paul, who's in Tajikistan, I think, and Ellen, who's in Seattle, and Harry, who's in Charleston, South Carolina, so that we can say the prayers as a family. I'm Steve Rockauer. I'm the father of the family. It's a way of keeping the family together and keeping the traditions alive of, uh, of Judaism. It's one of the things that we're supposed to do is to remember the Sabbath and bring it in and have the family together during the Sabbath. I'm Norman Saplosky. Anne is my daughter. I think it's marvelous to talk to them as well as see them. Let's go to Skype. Helen is there. Hello. Hi. Hi. How you doing, sweetie pie? Good. How are you? All right. Paul, you there? I'm here. I'm in Kazakhstan. Once we get everybody on the phone or on Skype, there are a number of traditions that we follow to welcome in the Jewish Sabbath. The first is that we light the candles and say a prayer over the candles. Baruch Hatah Adonai Eloheinu Melech and then we um, take a glass of wine and say a prayer over the wine. And then we say a prayer over the bread called a hamotzi. There's a traditional blessing for the children that has been handed down for years and years and years. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his countenance upon you, be gracious to you, and grant you peace. Amen. Mwah. Amen. Mwah. We belong Mwah. to a synagogue called Temple Micah, and one of the real hallmarks of Temple Micah okay, gotcha. is making Judaism and our traditions meaningful for us as American Jews in the 21st century. And this okay. is just another way that we do something as part of our community that does that. There are times when somebody is traveling, and literally in a car, so he'll eat a cracker um, just to have, you know, be part of it. It may just be for a few minutes, and then everybody goes about their business, but we have this very special time with our family every Friday night, and we all really cherish it. Bye. Love you guys. Love you too. Love you too. Bye-bye. Bye. This story was produced by Rebecca Blatt and came to us through the Public Insight Network, or PIN. It's a way for people to share their stories with us and for us to reach out for input on topics we're covering. To learn more about the network or to join, go to metroconnection.org slash PIN. Oh, and while you're on our website, we have this really cool slideshow featuring all sorts of photos along with Washingtonians waxing quite eloquently about their personal traditions. So check it out. for a break, but when we get back, the return of our series DC Gigs, and a guy who works one of the most traditional gigs there is. That's the second oldest profession, you know, you know what the first oldest was. (laughs) That and more in a minute on Metro Connection, here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions, and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. (laughs) 
I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Today we're talking about traditions. In just a bit, we're going to discuss some holiday traditions. But first, let's hit the books and learn about some pretty radical changes in the traditional ways we teach kids math. D.C. and Maryland have joined more than 40 states in embracing what's known as the Common Core Standards. That's an effort to establish uniform expectations for what students should learn every year, from kindergarten through high school. D.C. public schools rolled out new reading standards last year. This year, students are learning how to do math differently. Kavitha Cardoza brings us this crash course in this new approach to education. the times table is just one of many ways students in Jurel Hall's third grade class learn math. They especially love it when they get to stomp their feet or twirl around, but as soon as they get too noisy or off track, scholar position means sit in your place with your hands on the desk and be quiet. Once students have settled down, they continue with the lesson, making angles with their arms. Show me intersecting lines. Parallel. Touchdown. The Common Core state standards are an effort to get away from the often criticized mile-wide and inch-deep approach to teaching in the U.S. Under the old standards, D.C. public school teachers like Hall covered 45 topics. This year, they have to cover 28. That brings the U.S. more in line with high-achieving countries such as Finland, Japan and Singapore. Hall says third grade is a critical year, but in the past he had to race through challenging topics such as multiplication and division, only to find his students didn't quite understand or remember what he taught. Now he says he has almost twice as much time to cover topics. We just spent about six to eight weeks on fractions, and that was beautiful. Last year when I taught fractions, I spent about maybe three weeks. Hall says fractions are the building blocks of math. If students don't master concepts here, they'll have to struggle later with algebra. He does say teaching is far more challenging this year. It is definitely forcing me to think of activities and strategies, getting them to reason with each other and lesson planning around showing our work in different ways, like in diagrams or in number lines or in tables or using our arms. Daniel Asale teaches seventh grade math at Deedle Middle School in Northwest D.C. He likes that students can no longer guess the answers to a math question. They really have to understand the concept to answer questions accurately. In the past, they would have gotten a formula. Here's, here's the formula. Here's some examples. Try and figure out what the area of this trapezoid is. Whereas this year, they get a refresher on the area of a triangle that should be enough to be able to figure out the area of a trapezoid. Some students weren't buying this new approach. So where's the formula? Why can't I have a formula? Just give me the formula, I'll be able to do it. But uh, <laughs> the whole idea is that students develop that on their own so that when they're, they're faced with unfamiliar situations, they're more apt to try and tackle it rather than just shut down. The Common Core standards are far more rigorous than DCPS's previous standards. Asale says his advanced students love the new material, but he worries about his struggling students. This is almost another barrier because you're asking to do so much more. Amador Jamuada is helping 10th graders after school. They are similar because they have the same angles. Did you figure out angle C? No, I just guess. No, you need to find, find this out. out, but we know that the three angles... He teaches at Benjamin Banneker High School in Northwest D.C. Jamuada says it's a challenging time for students and teachers, even at this high-performing school because students are still transitioning. 
So we are doing Common Core in our ninth graders, and they are not ready. Because in their eighth grade, they were not taught with the Common Core. He likes that there's now an emphasis on real-world applications. His students learn about proportions by figuring out the height of different buildings in D.C., or volume by studying how the shape of different bottles affects how much water they hold. And Jamuada says students always want to learn lessons about percentages by calculating discounts in a mall. He says they had an aha moment recently when they realized a 15% discount on top of a 20% discount wasn't a 35% discount. And then, oh man, I was outsmarted right there. <laughs> okay, Mr. Jumuad, I need to be my mom all the time so that I can tell her that, oops, that's not the right thing because this one right here is better than that one. They love it. Several math teachers in D.C. are concerned the Common Core state standards have been rolled out too fast with little professional development to support these significant changes. They work longer hours, scrambling to find lesson plans, and worry these rigorous new standards will mean a drop in test scores. Michael Cohen, president of the nonprofit Achieve that helped write the new standards, says test scores may well fall, but they will be an honest and accurate reflection of how students in the U.S. are doing. The students will not have gotten dumber, right? The teachers will not be worse. The schools will not have failed. But we will have held our students or begun to held our students to a higher standard that is necessary in order to prepare students for success after high school. But more than anything, educators such as Daniel Asale, the seventh grade teacher, are hoping the new Common Core State Standards will help change the conversation around math. So it's no longer a subject everyone's afraid of. And unfortunately, it has been something that has been accepted. Oh, well, I wasn't good at math when I grew up either, so it's okay. You'll be good at other things. Whereas it's not okay. Because he says the skills you need to solve a math problem, critical thinking, creativity, precision, persistence, those aren't just math skills. Those are life skills. I'm Kavitha Kadusa. So this week's theme is, of course, traditions, and the man we'll meet next has one of the most traditional professions there is, and one that's quite fitting here in this city of grand monuments and buildings. Joe Alonzo has been a stonemason with the National Cathedral for 27 years. He's one of the guys helping to rebuild parts of the cathedral damaged in last year's earthquake. In the latest edition of our series, DC Gigs, Alonzo explains what it's like to construct and reconstruct some of our city's most iconic structures. A mason is, uh, I guess, one of the oldest professions on earth, right? <laughs> Second oldest profession, you know, you know what the first oldest was. My name is Joe Alonzo. I'm the head stonemason here at the National Cathedral. Every one of these pieces of stone that you see here is pretty much hand-cut, hand-made, fitted together by hand. Uh, I'm always amazed by it. All these arches and columns and just this incredible work all around me and uh, just a tremendous amount of skill and effort goes into building something like this. 
you know, everywhere you look, this, you know, American history everywhere. Walked by a couple interesting things. Of course, this is the tomb of President Woodrow Wilson. He's the only president of the United States buried in the District of Columbia. And then up above here, this is probably the most famous stained glass window in the cathedral. We call it the space window. It looks like outer space in the heavens, and you see that big red circle up there and the little dark disk in the center. That's a sliver of moon rock, actually, that was brought down by the Apollo 11 astronauts and presented to the cathedral. My dad was a mason. As a kid, I would go around with him and and help him on his side jobs. So I've been around brickwork, stonework, mortar, all that stuff since I was a kid. Right out of high school, uh, I was fortunate enough to get an apprenticeship in the Stonemasons Union here in Washington, D.C. D.C., of course, is a great stone town. All the magnificent structures, monuments, buildings, you know, block by block. You see, every one of these steps is an individually cut block of stone, and you see how it forms the spiral as we're going up. For a stonemason, at least in my opinion, the cathedral is the ultimate. Late 1984, early 85, the West Towers were still being built, so it was the opportunity to be a part of the final phase of construction of the cathedral. And uh, September 29, 1990, President George H.W. Bush was here. I was up on the scaffold, lowering that huge finial onto the base there, setting the final stone on the cathedral. 83 years to the day, I think to the hour, that the first stone was laid. Highest, uh, highest point in D.C. One more padlock to go. Ooh, a little breezy up here. This cathedral is in such a prominent spot in the skyline of D.C. I mean, look, what do you see when you're up here sticking out the most? You see the cathedral, the Washington Monument, and the U.S. Capitol. When you look up at these pinnacles now, what's missing is about 16 feet of stone, pieces that were shaken so badly in the quake. It was unbelievable. And now the cathedral has this massive scaffold around the top of its tower. And this pinnacle rotated tremendously in the earthquake, as if a giant hand just took it and rotated it counterclockwise several degrees. All these chunks coming out, and we've got to rebuild You know, this building is such an important part of the city and of the nation. I've been on it now for 27 years, and it's a part of me. I mean, look, we're almost 300 feet up in the air, and look at all the beautifully carved little angels. I mean, look at their little noses and eyelids and all of that. It's every one of these pieces of stone was hand-carved. You know, we want to put it back the way it was, and, and we will. That was Joe Alonzo, head stonemason at the National Cathedral, speaking with reporter Jocelyn Frank. If you have a distinctively D.C. gig you think we should feature on the show, let us know. Send an email to metro at wamu.org or tweet us. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. Everybody's working for the weekend.
next two stories are about the traditions of families. More particular, families working to blend different religious or cultural customs and beliefs. We begin with Neeraj and Allison Hodges' mystery. They live in D.C.'s Petworth neighborhood with their two daughters, three-year-old Nana and eight-month-old Zane. While Neeraj's family originally hails from India, he grew up in South Africa during apartheid. Allison had quite a different upbringing. She was the daughter of a rancher in western Texas. Now the mysteries are trying to teach their kids about all of their family traditions and even make up some new ones of their own. Rebecca Blatt stopped by the mystery's house as the family was making dinner and sent us this audio postcard. Can I do it with you? Okay. Let it cook a bit more and then we can flip it. Uh, these are chapatis, uh, or also known as rotis. And we grew up eating this in South Africa. They're wonderful to have with curries. But we've also found other ways of actually using it. So we have grilled chapatis uh, as we have like grilled sandwiches. So we've just found different ways of using traditional foods that we have um, and creating new dishes. So Nana, do you want to do your advent calendar? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Mm-hmm. We have a little advent calendar and we just put it on a little piece of string. Like we have these little envelopes and inside every envelope we wrote kind of a different thing that we're going to do that day. And so tonight it was to light our angel chimes. Okay. And then these angels... Just hang off the triangle. Oh, no, no. How cool is that, Nana? Wow. You know, I had one of these when I was your age. Okay, we're going to leave it and then we'll light it again. When I do things that I did as a kid, that my mom did with me, I see her um, kind of get misty. And you know, you never, I don't think you ever know what it is that your kids are going to, what's what's going to like transmit I don't, or, or really going to go through them. See it? Nana, you can make a wish now. I just hope, and I think it's already starting to show, that irrespective of who they're with or where they are, they're just going to be loved by people because they're going to exude this openness to everyone. And then irrespective of the, the vocation or profession that they choose, they'd apply those values and that, that sort of inner heart and emotion uh, to whatever they do. And that would make me the happiest father. The Mysteries story was produced by Rebecca Blatt and comes to us through our Public Insight Network, or PIN. If you missed our plug for PIN earlier in the hour, you can learn more about it at metroconnection.org slash PIN. Now, of course, blending different traditions can be a challenge. And this next story deals with interfaith marriages between Jews and Christians. The most recent statistics from the University of Miami show that about 40 percent of married Jews in our region have partners from outside their faith. And that's where the Interfaith Families Project comes in. It's a community of more than 100 families with one Christian partner and one Jewish partner. It was started nearly two decades ago by four women looking for help as they raised interfaith children. 
Emily Berman headed to Kensington, Maryland for the project's weekly gathering to see how these two traditions are taught and practiced side by side. When Mary Elizabeth Cisneros and Michael Rosenman decided to get married, no one raised any objections about the fact that they come from different faiths. But as soon as we started talking about children or raising the children, what we kept hearing from friends and family was you can't do both. They'll be confused. It doesn't work. It's not possible. Mary Beth was raised Catholic, and she wasn't just going to give that up. And Michael is a Jew, which wasn't just his religion, he says, but his culture. And we just weren't comfortable choosing one. But as their kids got older, they realized they'd have to figure something out pretty fast. We just wanted to give them a basis because bad things are going to happen. And for me, when those bad things happened, having my faith to fall back on was a great tool. So they decided their household would be both Jewish and Christian. But until we found this community, we didn't know how we were going to do it. The Interfaith Families Project begins each Sunday with a service. This week, the theme of the service is Hanukkah. We join in the interfaith responsive reading. The gathering is led by a rabbi, a minister of the United Church of Christ, and members of the community. The service is different each week, but one thing you'll always hear is the Shema, which is in Hebrew and affirms the Jewish belief in one God. You'll also hear the Lord's Prayer, one of the central prayers of Christianity. After the service, the kids and adults split off. Adults have a group discussion, and the kids go to Sunday school classes. I'm Nathaniel Rosenberg, 10 years old. My mom is Roman Catholic, and my dad is a Jew. Nathaniel's been a member since he was three months old. He says, though the classes do clearly define the differences between the religions, they spend much more time talking about the similarities. There's always light, and different people perform miracles, and they both have one God. Nathaniel says he loves learning about both religions, and for now, he doesn't feel any pressure to choose just one. And that's more presence and everything, so it's all fun. And what we're doing would not necessarily work everywhere. Rabbi Harold White is the group's Jewish spiritual leader. For example, it would not work well in a small town where intermarriage is almost unknown. But Washington is a a very interesting place because we have lots of hybrids here. Rabbi White's counterpart, Reverend Julia Jarvis, says from the beginning, there's been one big challenge in practicing both Judaism and Christianity, how to talk about Jesus. I mean, we, we used to say that Jesus was the elephant under the chuppah, you know, that nobody really wanted to talk about because it was, that's hard. Because Christianity believes Jesus to be the son of God and Judaism does not. Reverend Jarvis and Rabbi White frame the conversation in a way that they could all feel comfortable with. Jesus as a historical figure. He was born a Jew and he lived as a Jew and he died as a Jew. And in fact, the first people to follow Jesus were all Jews. Talking about Jesus for some couples has been their common ground. Matt McGrath and his wife Randy Field have been part of the group for nearly two decades. I'm 100% Jewish, but... I now have a connection to Jesus, and I have tremendous respect for Jesus, which before IFFP, I didn't have that. I had no knowledge of the historical Jesus. I'm 100% Christian, but my appreciation for the roots of Christianity is profound. 
Sunday school classes wrap up just before noon, and three-year-old Elena Kleiner runs over to her parents holding a sticky art project. I glued the, the, the candles on this. What is it, Elena? It's, it's, it's a menorah. This week, the focus is Hanukkah, but next week, the fifth graders will put on a nativity play. Mixing traditions can be a little overwhelming, says Rabbi White. But for an interfaith couple, the upside is huge. I think we've made many of our Jewish partners more Jewish and many of our Christian partners more Christian. And as for the kids, Rabbi White says, the goal is to teach the history, the prayers, and the culture, and leave the big decisions up to them. I'm Emily Berman. If you're part of a family that's working to blend two different faiths, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at metro at wamu.org. Up next... The story behind one of D.C.'s most bling-tastic, over-the-top holiday displays. Straight out, because I was from Panama, so they wanted me to show me the house with the lights. So at first I was like, huh? Like, house with the lights. As soon as we pulled up, I was like, wow, it's the house with the lights. It's coming your way on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're bringing you our annual show on traditions. Coming up, we'll swing by a glowing megawatt extravaganza of Christmas cheer at one DC home, and we'll continue our own Metro Connection tradition with the return of our weekly trip around the region door to door. But first, let's turn to a Washington tradition that's been going strong for 30 years, a tradition that just so happens to sound like this. This and this. Sing on the first day of Christmas These festive tunes are among the dozens you'll hear in the Christmas Revels, the annual solstice celebration put on by Washington Revels, a local group dedicated to performing traditional music, dance, and stories all year long. Greg Lewis is their executive director. Last year, we did a total of 55 different programs, of which the Christmas Revels, albeit our biggest, was just one. The Washington Revels are among 10 nonprofit independent Revels organizations across the country. And of all the professional and non-professional singers, actors, musicians, and dancers involved here in D.C., Lewis says? Well, I probably go back farthest. So far back that he can remember Washington's very first Christmas Revels in 1983. Unlike the 2012 incarnation, a two-and-a-half-hour spectacular spectacular with 100 performers, dazzling costumes, and a splashy multi-story set, the original production was far simpler. We had a bunch of trees dotting around, and the director said, just don't stand behind a tree. 
and that was it. It was, there was no other, <laughs> blocking notes didn't exist. It was, don't stand behind a tree. Every Christmas Revels has a particular theme. And back in 1983, that theme was medieval English. And we've probably done English, show oh, I don't know, seven, eight, nine times. But since then, the Washington Revels have moved farther afield, exploring Celtic. Early American. Italian. French. Even Russian, Scandinavian, and French-Canadian. This year, the Washington Revels are revisiting their 1984 theme, Haddon Hall, one of England's oldest and most romantic manor houses. The year is 1929, and on a dark and snowy solstice eve, the ninth Duke of Rutland brings his wife and children to his long-abandoned family home, with plans of selling it to make way for a new road. Motorcar transit times between Rosalie and Bakewell will be cut in half. Husband, I shall not miss this old hall. What a pile it is. So much stone. So cold. I'll wager no one has been here for more than 200 years. 217, my dear. But the Duke's only half right. No one living has been here for 217 years. Each winter solstice, spirits of Haddon Hall's former residents appear to make merry on this shortest day of the year. Who is this Poppin' Jay? Who are you, sir, and what's your business? And why haven't you dressed up? For the occasion? Bad sign, that, sir. Oh, what's your pleasure, and then that's with you. I am John Manners, Ninth Duke of Rutland, and I can tell you that you trespass upon my property. <laughs> but, spoiler alert, after dancing and singing with these cheery ghosts all night long, our Scrooge-like Duke ditches the bah humbug and decides to save Haddon Hall. Suppose we fix this place up. Invite the public in for tours. Doesn't the National Trust support... Historic sites. Now, lest you think this story sounds like mere visions of sugar plums, executive director Greg Lewis says, think again. The story that was portrayed is true. Um, it actually was the ninth Duke of Rutland was going to take it down, and there was going to be a motorway. Um, and we're not exactly sure whether it was Revel's ghost that persuaded him otherwise, but we think it makes a nicer story. We, in this case, is Lewis and his fellow Revel's directors, Roberta Gaspare. I'm the artistic director of Washington Revel's and the stage director of the Christmas Revel's. And Elizabeth Miller. I'm the music director of the Washington Revels and of this Christmas Revels show. Gaspari joined the group in 1991, Miller in 93. And while longtimer Greg Lewis still has her beat, Miller says she's been around long enough to get a powerful sense of the Revels' continuity. We get assigned stage families. And in one of my early Revels shows, my child daughter that year, Rihanna Nissen, is this year my assistant music director. So I've had her start from a child, and now she's, she's sort of graduated to the production level. And she's not alone, says Roberta Gaspare. We have a little saying that says, once a reveler, always a reveler. And we consider that for the audience as well. They are a vital part of the show. It's exciting to see them all singing and dancing in the aisles. Uh, yeah, not sure how I failed to mention that one. The audience. Listen, if you think watching a hundred people singing and dancing on stage is a spectacle, imagine more than a thousand people doing the same thing in the audience. Audience members leap in and out of their seats during the 12 days of Christmas, and during the Act One finale, The Lord of the Dance, they clasp hands and snake their way through the aisles. And the fun is when people who first came, they brought their children. Now their children are bringing their children and oftentimes we'll have four generations in the audience, that, which is really, I don't think we've ever quite hit five, but, <laughs> but we've had a good number of fours. 
And if the Washington Revels keep on keeping on for another 30 years, who knows? It may just be a matter of time. The Christmas Revels runs one more weekend at the George Washington Listener Auditorium. For performance information and to see the flying canoes from the 2008 French-Canadian Christmas Revels, no joke, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Um, while we're on the subject of holiday spectacular spectaculars, you know how in every neighborhood there's like that one house that has Christmas lights covering every available surface? Maybe there's even like a life-sized Santa and reindeer floating above the roof? Well, at one house in northwest D.C., this tradition goes all the way back to the 1960s when a charismatic religious leader wanted to bring light to a city in need of Christmas cheer. Jacob Fenston has the story. When George Ford Jr. was a kid growing up in Washington, he used to love going to see the Christmas displays in department store windows, stores like Hecht's downtown. Early years in Washington, D.C., the department stores had around Christmas time beautiful display where the children would go and just ah and swoon over the uh, mannequins in the window. And after the riots, of course, there was no more. The 1968 riots after the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. The Hex flagship store on 7th Street was one of hundreds of businesses damaged in the violence. In the years following, the Christmas displays downtown just weren't the same. So the Bishop of Ford's church decided to put on a Christmas display of his own. He wanted for those children who have no place to go to see this kind of lights like they used to do. The bishop was Walter McCullough, who led the D.C.-based faith, the United House of Prayer for All People, for more than 30 years. The Christmas lights began as a few strands on the bishop's house and evolved over the years into a massive display with lights on every part of the house, every tree and shrub. Ford is a lifelong member and apostle in the church and has been involved in decorating the bishop's house since the very beginning. We have teams, and they're assigned to do certain phases of the project. So the, the lights go kind of all the way up the hill behind the house. Yeah, come on. Mm-hmm. There's a Santa on a sleigh, a manger scene, and lots and lots of angels. Ford says last time they tried to count the lights, there was something like half a million of them. The bishop's house is in the leafy northern tip of the city near Silver Spring. The Christmas display is a local institution, drawing thousands of parents and kids each year. Stopping here is a family tradition for many, spanning generations as well as religions and ethnicities. Yeah, we usually we come every year. How many years do you know? How many years have you been coming? Uh, I believe like around 15 years. Yeah, I've been coming here since I was like 10. Since like 97. <laughs> December, yeah, December 97. Yeah, family brought me out here. Straight out. Because I'm from Panama. So they wanted me to show me the house with the lights. So at first I was like, huh? The like, house with the lights. As soon as we pulled up, I was like, wow, it's the house with the lights. <laughs> I've been here when I was a baby, baby, baby. How old are you now? I'm eight. It's fun to see Christmas lights. And I love Christmas, and I love getting presents, and it's just beautiful. I'm 41 years old now, so I've been coming here basically my whole life and seeing these lights every year. So I'll share it with my kids. I like like all of them. I like the manger. It takes me back to my childhood, you know, because... 
things have gotten so commercialized with Christmas now. This takes me back to, you know, when when we sang Silent Night and it meant something. I know this area for a long time and I used to bring my children. Now I brought my granddaughter. <laughs> Tell her what you saw. You saw a, you, a you saw a camel and an ox and cows and baby Jesus. Baby Jesus? Yeah. Yes. Tell them that it's very festive. Festive. And that you enjoy seeing all the lights? I enjoy seeing all the lights. Makes you happy, doesn't it? I have been coming here for years um, since my daughter. My daughter is 30. So I, I get excited. This makes me excited. It gets me ready for the holiday season. Um, from a religious standpoint, you think about heaven and how glorious it is, and this is only a piece of it. It's just it's beautiful. Those were the voices of parents and kids outside the bishop's house, including Fran Alves and her two-year-old grandson. Christian Arevalo. Also, Thomas Sathya Nathan, Robert Woods, Tom Roskowski and his kids Decker and Gray. Look how big I am. Josie Mar Taylor, Brianna Acevedo, and Gitachu McConan. The Christmas lights will be up through the beginning of January, but if you miss them this year, there's always next year and the year after and the year after. I'm Jacob Fenston. If you can't get out to North Portal Drive, you can still check out the lights on the Bishop's House. We have photos on our website, metroconnection.org. Also, we want to know where the big light displays are in your neighborhood. Send us an email. Our address is metro at wamu.org. And now, our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Logan Circle in northwest D.C. and Benning Heights in southeast D.C. My name is Tim Christensen. I'm 56 years old, and I live in the Logan Circle neighborhood of Washington, D.C. The boundaries are K Street on the south, S Street on the north, 9th Street on the east, and 16th Street on the west. The population in Logan Circle probably has a higher proportion of LGBT residents than any other neighborhood in Washington, D.C. It's a very welcoming community. The era from 1968 to the 1990s, which was the peak of the crack epidemic, was very difficult in Logan Circle. Times have changed. The issues are different. People talk more about parking now than they talk about prostitution. But there are still issues that need to be dealt with, and they do draw the community together. Logan Circle has a couple of icons that are worthy of note. One is the beautiful statue of General John Logan, which sits in the middle of Logan Circle Park. The circle was originally called Iowa Circle. It was changed to Logan Circle in 1930. Another icon in Logan Circle neighborhood is, of course, the fabulous Studio Theater, which is part of the bedrock of this community. Whether it's shopping, dry cleaning, hardware store, great dining, terrific theater, terrific bars, everything I need is within a few blocks of my front door. My full name is Benjamin Earl Thomas Sr., and I am 92 years old. I live in Washington, D.C. I'm in the Benning Heights area. I've been there since 1958. I live three blocks south of the Maryland line, right in the tip end of southeast Washington. I live between Benning Road and Pennsylvania Avenue. Of course, there's big Fort DuPont Park in between that area. Nearest grocery store is down on Minnesota Avenue, which is probably, I'd say, three miles from my house, but they have a couple of corner stores. 
Most of the people that moved in at the same time that I did, we started buying our own homes. Most of them have sold or passed on. It's not as family friendly like it was at one time. Quite a bit has changed, and a lot of the kids that grew up, very few has come back to live in the neighborhood. I'm probably the only one in my block that sits on my porch regularly because a lot of people there are single widows, women that live by themselves, and they're afraid to come out. What I really like about it is that it's still a quiet neighborhood. <laughs> I, I could sleep at night. We heard from Tim Christensen in Logan Circle and Benjamin Earl Thomas Sr. of Benning Heights. Your neighborhood can be a part of Door to Door, too. Just send an email to metro at wamu.org or visit us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash metroconnection.org. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Kavitha Cardoza, Rebecca Blatt, Emily Berman, and Jacob Fenston, along with reporter Jocelyn Frank. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Rachel Schuster. Lauren Landau, Rachel Schuster, and John Hines produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can see all the music we use on our website. That's metroconnection.org. Just click on a story, and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on metroconnection.org, you can find our Twitter and Facebook links. You can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. To hear our most recent episodes, click the podcast link or find us on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when we'll present a show we're calling Follow-Ups. You know all those Metro Connection stories you hear and you wonder what happened next after the story aired? Well, next week, we'll let you know by bringing you the long-awaited second act, if you will. We'll check back in with the opera superstar whose career was nearly derailed by illness. We'll visit with kids who were struggling with obesity to see how they're faring now. And we'll get the full story of a man we heard from in our recent report on Lorton Prison, a man who's turned his life around in a major way. You know, I went in as a young addict, you know, out of control, and I came out as a minister, educated, with a new purpose in life. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.